Hello and welcome to episode 592 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. It is Monster Kid Radio and I'm your host, writer, producer and well, Derek, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here this week because this week we're going to revisit something produced by our friends Stephen D. Sullivan and Christopher R. Mim. I'm talking about Atomic Tales, and I'll tell you all about that here in a second. But first, I want to tell you about the music you're listening to. This is from Nicholas Burgess. It comes from their upcoming album, All Night Midnight Monster Party, and that's actually the name of the song as well. Once you're hearing right now is the instrumental version of the song. You're going to hear the entire song with lyrics at the end of this episode. Big thanks to Nicholas for letting us play his music here on the show. The entire album doesn't drop until October 21st, so this is the only place you're going to hear All Night Midnight Monster Party until it drops on October 21st. But seriously, listen to some of these title tracks from this album. Grave Plot, Horror of the Invisible Man, Wolfman's Brain is Still Alive, Oh Wow, You're a Mummy Now, I Saw Dracula Kicking a Guy Unconscious in an Alley. Okay, this album, it sounds great. Go check him out at nicholasburgess.bandcamp.com. Of course, follow the link in the show notes as well when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast and make sure you let him know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. Okay, let's get back to Atomic Tales. Here's what Atomic Tales is. Atomic Tales is the brainchild of Stephen E. Sullivan and Christopher Armim. It's basically uh, an audio drama, a radio show for Monster Kids, but it's produced now. It's something brand new written entirely by Steve and Yamiano Steve, friend of the show. Going to have him on the show here in the near future. Probably going to talk about House of Dracula with him soon. I don't think I've told him that, so uh, Steve, if you're hearing this for the first time, drop me a line, we'll get this scheduled. Anyway, uh, we're going to have Steve on the show, and of course, Chris for our mem. Y'all know Chris, the man behind the Memiverse, movies like House of Ghosts, The Giant Spider, a whole bunch of other movies whose titles I'm blanking on right now because I want to make sure I get this episode out, and I'm low on top. Anyway, Chris for our mem is an incredible filmmaker, Stephen E. Sullivan's an incredible writer, their powers combined created Atomic Tales. Now, we've played Atomic Tales here on the show in the past. Back in episode 546, we did a marathon run of Atomic Tales episodes 1 through 8. I'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes, of course, where you can find it in the archives at monsterkidradio.net. What you're going to get today are episodes 9 through 14. I was trying to describe this to somebody the other day, and I think I described it as kind of like a retro X-Files kind of thing. That's the vibe that I get. What's the vibe you get? Let me know in some feedback. And speaking of feedback, you like that segue? Speaking of feedback, we have an email. It's time. It's time? Yes, it's time. It's It's time time for Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio Radio Mail Call. Call. This email comes from Ryan Lingle. We've had Ryan on the show in the past. He's a stop-motion artist worked on a number of Josh Kennedy projects and a few other things on his own as well. And he wrote in, in regards to last week's episode. And the first thing that he says here is something that I actually had echoed back to me in a number of emails. And it means a lot to me that you all responded so well. But I'm going to read Ryan's email here. Beth seems like a great lady. And wow, that Dolly Parton story was great. And you guys touched on some great stuff about creativity. Okay, I'm going to get to Brian's email, the rest of Brian's email here in a moment. But I just wanted to say uh, thank you for everybody's support for my having Beth on the show. And seriously, if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, you got to go to Scaregrounds PDX. You got to. It's 
awesome. Go to tinyurl.com slash mkrscaregrounds, and you can even save a couple of bucks on your tickets. Seriously, go. It's running every weekend up until Halloween, and then on Halloween, that weekend, it is happening like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday. It just keeps getting better and better because as the season progresses, they make tweaks, they make changes, they you know continue to improve. It's just so cool. So seriously, go check out Scaregrounds PDX if you haven't done that. Okay, let's get back to the rest of Ryan's email. Uh, let's see. The Teenage Caveman episode was also great. It's at the top of the heap of 1 million BC stock footage movies, which is a subgenre in itself. At first I thought, oh man, I wanted to talk about that one. But no one could have brought the level of insight and information that Joe Schultz brought. A lot of other good shows lately, too. I'd say MKR is going better than ever, but really, it's just been consistently good from the start. Have a good, spooky season. Your pal, Ryan. Ryan, thanks for writing in. I had a blast chatting with Joe, and, you know, it's been way too long since I had Joe on the show, like, between his appearances on the show. I talked about that during that episode. Joe knows his stuff, man. Joe knows his stuff. So, yeah, we'll definitely have him again on soon. I'm not sure when, but... You know, I'm trying to schedule things. I'm trying to schedule getting you on the show, Ryan. And of course, part of the email that Ryan sent me is just like a little personal thing that I guess I'm going to share. Sorry. Uh, he wrote about his enthusiasm about me publicly asking Brent Piper to be on the show. I need to get a hold of Brett and make sure that he knows he is seriously invited to be on the show. would love to have him on to talk about some things as well. Got a lot of things coming up here in the future on the show i am going to be able to sneak away this upcoming weekend to the lovecraft film festival so i'm going to go ahead and try to record some audio at that event and that will probably be on next week's episode but you know i've got a lot of things that i really really want to do on the show moving forward and i'm looking at kind of evolving things and taking things to whatever that so-called next level is in 2023 so stay tuned just lots of things coming up appreciate that you appreciate it, Ryan, and everybody else. Again, thanks for writing in in regards to your support of last week's episode and my having Beth on the show. I'm probably going to have Beth on the show more often in the future as well, as long as she's willing, of course. All right, if you want to be cool like Ryan and email the show and have your feedback read here on the podcast, all you got to do is shoot me an email at monsterkidradio at gmail.com, or you can even take it up another level and call in and leave us a voicemail and call us at 360-524-2484. I know there's a lot of spooky stuff happening this season, so if you're at an event, if you're anywhere out and about doing anything Halloween-like or something that you think Monster Kids would dig, Call in. Give us a live report. I'd love to include you in an upcoming episode of Monster Kid Radio. Dr. Kenyatta Gregg arrived at the scene late. A cluster of naked people surrounded the stranded dolphins, beached a dozen yards above the wash of the waves. The nudists chatted noisily, while a blonde in khaki shorts and a tied-off pink blouse, the first clothed person Kenyatta had seen on Bluff Beach, fought the noise to give directions. There were so many gawkers, Kenyatta caught only a glimpse of gray flukes and flippers through the crowd. What could have caused this? In Monster Shark on a Nude Beach, a shy marine biologist must up his game and stop a series of shark attacks at the Caribbean's most famous clothing-optional playground. Award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan brings you this sexy, action-packed summer read, perfect for fans of The Meg and Jaws. Read three chapters free on Amazon. Find out more at buffbeach.com 
or sdsullivan.com. Each year, 10,000 tourists visit Ocean Beach. They come to swim, to go boating, or just to lie in the summer sun. But this summer, Ocean Beach has attracted something else. American International presents Tentacles. It slept until man disturbed it. Then it woke with a fury no man could control. Tentacles, a giant octopus with eight writhing arms, deadlier than the claws of a tiger. Eight tons of bone-crunching terror that tears apart a quiet seaside community. Tentacles, starring John Houston, Shelley Winters, Bo Hopkins, Claude Akins, and Henry Fonda. Tentacles, a fight to the death between the mighty jaws of a killer whale and the awesome power of a giant octopus. No sea monster of myth or legend is half so deadly as one that actually exists. Tentacles, the most gripping suspense you'll ever experience. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Live from the land of light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty ultra heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. An increase in UFO activity leads to extra work and frayed nerves within the Ultra Guard, but one case in particular leads to a desperate search for the stolen Ultra Eye in the 37th episode of Ultra 7. While on overnight patrol, Amagi and Furuhashi observe a young girl driving a large truck. They treat it as a random anomaly until they discover the original driver of the truck about to lose consciousness. Just before he does, he speaks of a girl seen within a bright light, and connecting the dots, the Ultra Guardsmen notify Dan to stop the truck for inspection. After a short chase, a flying saucer runs Dan off the road, and the girl spotted by Amagi and Furuhashi appears, stealing the Ultra Eye from Dan's jacket pocket. Soon afterward, a TDF space station intercepts a communication aimed at Planet Magellan, which indicates that a mission is complete and the sender is ready to be extracted. The signal is traced to an entertainment district and it's there that Dan engages in a telepathic conversation with the girl from another planet. It's soon evident that her mission was to steal the Ultra Eye, leaving Dan unable to transform into Ultra 7 with planet Earth therefore open to attack. And sure enough, a return transmission from Magellan contains the chilling revelation that a doomsday missile has already been launched at the Earth. The Ultra Guard rushes to intercept it as Dan leaves Captain Kiriyama in the lurch to make a final attempt at preventing the annihilation of the planet. The Stolen Ultra Eye is a classic episode of Ultra 7 on the strength of the story and the performance of Koji Moritsugu as Dan Moriboshi. Moritsugu consistently portrays Dan as a man of action and integrity, but here there are also notes of vulnerability and compassion, conveyed non-verbally for the most part. Episode 37 returns to the consideration of why Seven troubles himself with Defending Earth, a poignant theme with great resonance. And it's this choice to protect humanity despite its faults that helps explain Ultra 7's enduring popularity 55 years after the series debuted. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Mansky reporting.
species of horror is born as science fiction becomes science fact. I've never seen anything like it. One minute they weren't there, and the next minute they were everywhere. An army of deadly predators searching, destroying anything in their path. He's over at Colby's. He's found another 20 or 30 hills just like the one we burned. Why did they come? What do they want? The spiders in this area have organized themselves into an aggressive army. A living, crawling hell on Earth. The kingdom of the spiders. A wild science fiction nightmare. Starring William Shatner, Tiffany Bowling, Woody Strode, and introducing Alphabese Davis. Your nightmares will never be the same. Kingdom of the Spiders. The next victim could be you. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. What do you see? The Howling. Somewhere in this city. In this human jungle. It begins. Just try. He's right there. What do you see? What's there, Karen? What do you see, Karen? What's there? Somewhere in these woods. In this primal, sensuous, secret place lies an experience too terrifying for words. And now, all anyone can do is watch and wait. Tonight I'm gonna show you something. Make you believe. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today we start a month-long celebration of Halloween with a look at a rare TV special covered in FM 179. It was a two-page article with three photos. Let's hear what it was all about. It's always October 31st on Halloween Planet. Wolfman, the Cyclops, Frankenstein, Count and Countess Dracula, plus a mess of ghouls, a mass of dinosaurs, a motley group of aliens, and one and two, what's a one and two? A twin-headed dragon. Watch out. These assorted beasties and things have gathered from the five corners of the galaxy, who said a galaxy has to have four corners for the greatest Halloween party of all time and space. Two human children running away or rather rocketing away from home in a homemade spaceship, find themselves inexplicably drawn to a mysterious fog-enshrouded planet, the Halloween planet. The reason their rocket is guided there is that a supreme alien benefactor figures they'd have a good time there. The cosmic good guy is known as the Watcher, and the Watcher is portrayed by none other than our old friend from the serial days, the star of stage and screen and telephone booth, Superman himself, Kirk Allen. The interstellar neckbiter is played by John Syracuse, 
Count Dracula's consort, the Lady Dracula, is portrayed by Joy Galley. Beneath the bushy hair and bristly beard of Wolfman is Dennis Underwood. Keeping an eye on you, and that's singularly true, is Carl Carver as the Cyclops. Lord Halkin is Robin Schertz, Marcias Denise West, and Zebulon Wayne Neverka. Effective FX crew. Fresh from his success on The Howling and Caveman is Ernie D. Farino, who brings the dinosaurs to life with his stop-motion animation. Ed Edmonds is credited with creating the cast of Aliens. Chief model designer and builder, Steven Santangelo. Special makeup by Ricardo Gonzalez and his crew. Producer Fred Olin Ray, who wrote the original teleplay, says of the buffet table sequence, I think FM readers will eat it up. Olin's previous credits include Black Sunday, Shockwaves, and The Alien Dead with Buster Flash Gordon Crabb. The Halloween Planet is a made-for-TV movie of a half-hour duration, a Firebird International picture in association with Viking Films. Like the Cyclops, keep an eye on your television guide for a play date on The Halloween Planet. So have any of you seen this? One source says it never aired and was released briefly in 2018 and grossed $5,000. I couldn't find it streaming. I would love to see the stop-motion animation. That is all for this week's spooky look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Mr. Secretary, a concrete blockhouse has been built in a western desert, miles from any habitation. I'd like you to see that test, Superman. The location is here. Hmm. That's about 2,000 miles away. I can be there in 30 seconds. You may remove the blindfold. Now give me your information. I know how to make Superman helpless. I'm waiting. The meteor that fell the other night is a fragment from the planet Krypton. Its rays take away all of Superman's powers. stricken by a meteor in the swamps of Florida. It signals the arrival of the alien dead. The alligators weren't enough to sustain their hunger for flesh and blood, so the alien dead set their sights on the inhabitants of a small town. The alien dead, more frightening than Carrie, more spine-tingling than the exorcist. When the alien dead find you, you will be deader than Mother's Day at an orphanage. The alien dead are here now. Are you prepared? Starts Friday at the Hollywood Drive-In.
Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, Dr. Tarragon herself takes an interest in the problem of the giant insect infestation in a story we call Into the Ant Nest. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Some days you're in the right place at the right time, and some days you're not. The verdict remains out on a recent day I wandered into the Tarragon's lab at HQ. That particular morning, I was helping out secretary, Gigi Brock, by delivering some reports to the father-daughter scientist team who run this place. Dr. Shannon Z. Tarragon glanced through the papers I'd brought, puzzled over them for a moment, and then turned to her father. Dad, I think I'm going to have to go out in the field, she announced. That probably surprised the prof just as much as it did me. The really big brains at the U.S. Science Bureau almost never leave HQ, and she and her dad are the biggest. Professor Tarragon looked up from the microscope on his lab table. Oh? Why is that, Shannon? I don't like the results I'm seeing on that ape-like creature we dug out of the Never Summer Mountains after Agents 1 and 4 killed it. You mean the Yeti? I asked, unable to keep from sticking my nose in. Why? Because all the tests are saying that it wasn't a yeti. She replied, slapping the papers down on her desk. Just an ordinary ape. Banana oil, I shot back. That thing was eight feet tall and had glowing red eyes. We've read the reports, Agent One, her father assured me. Shannon and I aren't doubting what you saw. Clearly, this was some kind of mutation. But what caused it to mutate? His daughter with the PhD pressed. Is it the same mysterious substance that's growing the giant bugs? We need more data to analyze, and these mutants keep decaying rapidly in the field, leaving nothing left to examine. Except one crushed ape of extraordinary size, I noted. Exactly. Dad, one of us needs to be on the spot when another one of these creatures is killed, and I'm the obvious choice. Well, said her father, returning to his work, pick a good team and stay safe. Three guesses who Doc Tarragon picked to head up her team of anti-bug bodyguards. Less than 48 hours later, the Doc and I were venturing into a newly discovered giant ant nest in the foothills outside of Partoon, Utah. The army had the area sealed off. Not that there were a lot of people out in this part of the desert anyway. Shortly before we helicoptered in, they saturated the nest with some kind of super deadly chemical. Cyanide gas, maybe. Guaranteed to knock the buggers out for keeps. It probably wouldn't kill any eggs, though, and that's what Doc was counting on for her samples. Of course, she took me and Agent 6, Roughhouse Rick Donlevy, with her as a precaution against any stragglers. We also brought along Agent 4, Alec Boom Boom Murphy, just in case things got really rough. I was hoping they wouldn't. Those army boys are usually great at their jobs, and we've been battling these giant ants almost since the beginning of this strange invasion. Still, it's always comforting to have some good agents with you in a pinch. And as the four of us, geared up like science fiction astronauts, rappelled into the opening of the giant anthill, I wished somebody would pinch me. My entire body was already sweating as we checked our equipment, from our anti-gas hoods to our cleated climbing boots at the bottom of the first drop. My fellow agents and I were each carrying twin sidearms, grenades, 
a machine gun, and a flamethrower, as well as lights and the exploring gear we needed. Boom Boom had all that plus a bazooka and various infernal devices. Roughhouse, who's built like a bull, toted along some extra lab stuff for the dock, just in case. Doc Tarragon shouldered most of her scientific equipment, of course, wanting it all within easy reach. I'm pretty damn sure she was the only one of us happy to be there. Agent Six laughed, his big voice seeming to shake the sandy cavern the four of us stood assembled in. Boy, my sister's gonna be sorry she missed this trip. None of us will ever hear the end of it. Roughhouse's sister, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, aka Agent Seven, is the Bureau's field science buff. She can take my spot. I can blow this joint up from topside. Agent 4 offered, looking around nervously. Agent 7 couldn't get here in time. Doc explained. Every hour delayed is another hour new ants might hatch and burrow out past the military cordon. We better get going then, I said. The sooner we can find the samples you're after, Doc, the sooner the army can firebomb this place and seal it up for good. I'm into that. Six agreed. Just so long as I get to help. Four added, patting one of his grenades. He'd brought about twice as many as the rest of us. Onward! Doc Tarragon commanded, pointing to the tunnel slanting down into the earth. She would have led us into the bowels of hell herself right then, but Roughhouse and I stepped up to take point, leaving Boom Boom to guard her, and the rest of us, from the rear. Doc was our most valuable asset, after all. Better that one of us expendables should first blunder into anything unexpected. The four of us cautiously hiked deeper and deeper into the nest, walking when we could, repelling when we had to, roping ourselves together and using pitons specifically designed by the Doc and her dad on steep slopes. We didn't see much sign of the ants, which wasn't surprising. As big as they are, these buggers disintegrate pretty quickly when they're killed, just like those fireflies I first encountered back in Colorado years ago. As we turned a corner, a hulking black shape blocked the corridor ahead, its faceted insect eyes gleaming in the beams of our flashlights. Roughhouse and I fired a couple of shots into it before Doc yelled, Stop, stop, it's just a carapace. The warning came too late, though, and our bullets shattered the thing into a million pieces, like a dropped sheet of safety glass. Uh, sorry, Shannon. Rick apologized as the young PhD glared at us through her protective hood. We'll get samples before shooting next time, I promised. That's what we're here for. She scolded. Not for extra bureau target practice. Now tamp down the butterflies in your bellies and let's move. She pushed past Roughhouse and me, taking the lead for a short time after that, despite our efforts to dissuade her. Does she think we want to stay down here any longer than absolutely necessary? Alec whispered to Rick and me. All three of us couldn't help but chuckle. We kept close behind the dock, though, always ready to charge to the fore if danger arose. It didn't take long before she found another huge carapace, at least three or four yards long, standing guard like an empty suit of armor. When she tried to take a sample of it, though, it too crumbled into dust. Damn it! She cursed. It's been dead too long. I hope the eggs in the queen's chamber are still alive, or this whole expedition will have been pointless. Let's hope not, Boom Boom muttered, hand resting on a grenade once more. I wouldn't want to have to do this twice. Just then, the entire tunnel shook, and part of the wall behind him collapsed. He barely hopped out of the way of the cascading sand and debris as the air filled with a hideous screeching sound. It's a live one! Look out! I cried, as both Six and I lit into it with our machine guns. Don't damage it too much. Doc shouted over the gunfire. Tell that to it! Alec shouted as the monster ant surged toward him. Agent Four lived up to his nickname. A well-placed grenade blew off the bug's back half. 
There's more in the tunnel, he called. They must have been sealed in by the army attack. Burn them, Doc commanded. I can get the samples I need here. Ray, watch our backs. Roger, I said, taking up position to guard the whole crew as Doc unlimbered her equipment and Alec and Rick torched the newly opened tunnel with blasts from their flamethrowers. A tense hour later, all four of us scrambled back out of the giant anthill as some infernal contraptions Alec had left behind turned what remained of the nest into a firestorm. Not much for the army to clean up after this, he said proudly as a final explosion filled the air around us with smoke and sand. Get what you needed, Doc? I asked as all of us stripped off our protective gear and the army moved in to check Boom Boom's work. I sure hope so, Rick commented. I don't want to go through that again. Dr. Shannon Tarragon nodded, a faraway look in her eyes. But, I ventured. That glowing green icor these bugs have. You said that that snow monster bled green too, right? Yeah, I confirmed. What about it? It's like nothing I've ever seen in nature. She mused. And it decays at an astonishing rate. I barely got to get a look at it before it was gone. So? Rick asked. What's it mean? It means that this isn't a natural mutation, Dr. Tarragon concluded. I think somebody may be creating these monsters deliberately. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Into the Ant Nest, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent One and Professor Tarragon, and featured Lisa Sancello as Dr. Shannon Z. Tarragon, Christopher Young as Agent Six, Roughhouse Rick Donlevy, and Elliot Mim as Agent Four, Alec Boom Boom Murphy. We affectionately dedicate this episode to James Arness, James Whitmore, and especially Joan Weldon from the movie Them. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com, the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com, and the I Love That Movie podcast, of which Miss Sanchello is the host, at ILoveThatMoviePodcast.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales! Stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series... Strange Invaders. Tonight, Agents 1, 2, and 7 get in over their heads while investigating strange cattle deaths out west in... Mansect. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of... Atomic Tales! White-hot pain shot through me, and my pistol clattered to the messy lab floor as the scimitar-sized insect claw stabbed into my right shoulder. 
Ray! Agent 2 shouted, taking aim from where he lay on the paper-strewn concrete. The bug monster had decked him before stabbing me. Never mind me, I grunted, trying to pull away from the thing. Just shoot it! Ace hesitated, clearly thinking he couldn't blast it without nailing me too. The creature was shaped like a man, but didn't look remotely human. Aside from the white lab coat and ragged pants that draped its hideous form, a pair of bulbous, multifaceted bug eyes stared from its misshapen head. Its pincer mouth snapped hungrily, scant inches from my face. The thing's skin looked like armor, and its feet terminated in twin talons. One of its arms ended in a human-like hand, the other in a single long claw embedded in my shoulder. I lurched forward, butting my head into its ugly mug. Its mandibles gouged a scrape across my forehead, but the blow seemed to stun it, and I managed to pull myself out of the monster's grip. I staggered back, overturning a rack of metal shells as I tried to stanch my shoulders bleeding with my other hand. Beakers smashed on the floor, spilling God only knows what chemicals. Two's automatic barked, the flare from its muzzle momentarily illuminating the dimly lit room, but the shot ricocheted off of the humanoid bug's armored carapace. The mansect, there was no other word for this abomination, came at me, its deadly claw dripping with my blood. Bellevue, Colorado hadn't looked like a place where I might die when Agents 2, 7, and I arrived a few short hours ago. Runway built for crop dusting, probably. Agent 7 commented on our approach to the narrow airstrip nestled in the bucolic countryside. Not much else. 2 added as he touched us down on the bumpy tarmac. The Bureau had a Dodge Power Wagon waiting for us. Not the usual Studebaker. Good thing I like you boys, because that front seat is pretty cozy for three. Seven remarked. Unless one of you wants to ride in the back. She jangled the truck's keys as she said it. Shotgun! Agent two called. I didn't object. As Agent one, I outranked them both, but I liked ruthless Ruth Donlevy, and riding shoulder to shoulder with her was definitely not the worst thing in the world. I'm going to check on those unusual cattle deaths. She announced as we got going. Drop us in town on your way, I said. Ace and I will talk to the locals, see if we can find out about the cattle, the saucer sightings. All the usual stuff. Agent 2, Buster Ace Freeman, concluded. Seven dropped us off and we chatted up the townsfolk. Bellevue isn't a big place, just a cluster of western-style buildings with some small, outlying farms. With the recent mysterious cattle deaths, they were glad to have us federal agents around, though the locals remained wary. They were wary of both strangers and of each other. However, they were most suspicious of a local scientist, Dr. Vince Hedison, who'd lately become very secretive. Some folks even speculated that Hedison might be the weird figure seen sneaking through the nearby fields and around the edges of town at night. He'd come to Bellevue to help the locals with crop and livestock yields. At first, that had seemed to be working out. Now, people weren't so certain. Ruth was still out checking the cattle, but Hedison's place lay close enough for me and Agent 2 to hike to it. The scientist's house was an old two-story ranch with a newer barn-like metal structure at the rear. The front door hung open, banging in the dusty breeze. A faint, acrid odor raised the hair on the back of my neck. Something smells funny. 2 confirmed. Dr. Hedison? I called as we entered. Are you home? Is everything okay? Getting no answer, we did a quick sweep of the house. The trappings of everyday life lay in disorganized heaps throughout. Eventually, we discovered a steel door at the back. To his lab, I'm thinking, I deduced. Ace nodded. In silent agreement, 
we both drew our guns. We knocked, but only a metallic echo replied. It's not locked, I noted. Let's take a look. The door creaked open, and we cautiously advanced into a cluttered laboratory, a big room lit only by scattered, dust-covered skylights. The equipment looked almost like the Terragon setup, seeming to have every piece of gear imaginable as well as cages of numerous sizes and examining tables big enough for a horse or a slaughtered cow. Naturally, the light switch didn't work. Dr. Hedison! Two called. You in here? U.S. Science Bureau, we need to talk to you. Only a faint skittering sound gave us any warning of the attack. The pain in my wounded shoulder flared as the mansect bore in on me, jaws clacking, scythe-like arm raised for the kill. I stumbled over the fallen shelving. I had nowhere left to retreat. Two's gun lit the semi-darkness once more. His shot found a vulnerable spot in the monster's left knee. The mansect staggered but didn't go down. It turned on my partner. Ace fired again and the monster chittered angrily as the shot bounced off its shoulder, missing the exposed joint. Two backed up, taking better aim, but he misjudged the length of the thing's claw. It lashed out, whip-like, and sent him sprawling to the floor, unconscious. The mansect turned toward me once more, greenish drool dripping from its clicking jaws. I gauged the distance to my fallen automatic. I can shoot left-handed, but I wasn't sure I could reach it. I ignored the pain in my shoulder and coiled every muscle in my body to try. Hey, you! A feminine voice called. My foe wheeled at the sound, just as ruthless Ruth Donlevy tossed a beaker full of something into the mansect's ugly face. The monster screeched as a cloud of broken glass and chemicals enveloped its bug-like head. I took a step toward Agent Seven and then staggered and fell, twitching to the ground. Seven grinned. You guys all right? Getting there, Ace moaned, staggering to his feet. Been better, I replied. As my fellow agents helped me up, I asked, What did you do to it, Ruth? Chloroform. You boys should learn to read labels if you're going to fight in a lab. Wasn't our original plan, Agent 2 pointed out. What is this thing? Mansect, I managed to mumble. The world was starting to spin a little. Good a name for it as any. Ace, tie it to that chair while I keep Ray from bleeding to death, would you? Half an hour later, both the Mansect and I were coming around, and somebody had fixed the lights. The monster didn't look any handsomer now that we could see it clearly. Dr. Hedison, I presume. Agent Seven said. She'd found some notebooks after patching me up and had been paging through them. You mean that guy's the doc? Agent Two asked. He's the one responsible for the dead cattle and the mysterious shadows that people have been seeing? Looks like. Ruth replied. From what I can piece together, he was working on some kind of animal husbandry experiments and something went wrong. He might be responsible for a whole lot more, too. My turn to be puzzled. What do you mean? Remember how Doc Tarragon recently said that someone might be behind the giant insect invasion? She shot a meaningful look at the mansect. Tarragon. The inhuman voice of the creature made all three of us jump. Help me. The thing that had been Dr. Hedison chittered. Antidote. Is he saying there's a cure for this? I asked. Two quickly searched the notes again. It looks like he was working on one, but he didn't have a chance to take it before his mutant insect nature asserted itself. Everybody look around. Please, before too late. We looked, still woozy, 
I had little luck. Anything? I asked. A hell of a lot of honey. Two replied. Food, maybe? I suggested. Found it. Seven exclaimed. As a field science specialist, Ruth probably had a better idea of what to look for. She returned with a syringe of yellow-green goop. His insect-like hands would have made it hard to use this. Lucky it didn't break in the ruckus. But will it work? I asked. Must work. The former Dr. Hedison insisted. Please. His inhuman body was shaking now, straining at his bonds, the insect part of him reasserting itself. I'll have to inject it into a joint. Ruth noted. It took a bit of work, but she managed it. Hedison's bug-like form shook even more, and an eerie wail escaped his pincer mouth. The ropes restraining him began to snap, one, and then another, and then suddenly, his whole body jerked, and he lay still. The three of us watched in awe as the insect parts of his physique melted away, revealing an emaciated human being underneath. Ruth checked his pulse. Dead. She announced sadly. The pteragons are going to be mighty disappointed, I said. But maybe this is the end. If Hedison was behind the giant insects, maybe it's over. Maybe we can mop up whatever's left of the bugs and finally be done with it. Agent 7 looked thoughtfully at Hedison's notebooks, piled on a table nearby. Maybe, she said. But I wouldn't count on it. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Mansect, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who played Agent 1, and featured Fred Goodrum as Agent 2, Buster Ace Freeman, Stephanie Mim as Agent 7, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, and Michael Kaiser as Dr. Vince Hedison, the Mansect. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of Science, Mystery, and Excitement This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight, we conclude our heroes' initial encounters with the giant bugs now poised to spread like an A-bomb-birthed plague across America in... Wings of Death. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Thanks for taking the time to have lunch with me, Agent 3. I mean, Suzanne. I I mean, Rocky. Suzanne is fine if that's easier for you, Gigi. Even though most people at the Bureau call me Rocky. Sorry. It's just that I'm so nervous. About your father, the general... I heard he'd been writing you pretty hard. Yeah, he doesn't want me becoming an agent. Says I'm too young. Though, I think he really just doesn't want me to do it because I'm a girl. 
He'd flip his lid if he knew I was talking to you during my lunch break. Doesn't want me fraternizing with the agents. Or anybody, really. Dads can be like that. So what did you want to talk about, Gigi? Well, my dad banned me from listening to the case files. And I wanted to find out what happened after the killer wasps chased you and Agent One down to the lakeshore. I mean, I know you weren't killed, but... That's a pretty tight spot, that's for sure. So here's what happened. Ray, duck! I shouted as a wasp the size of a dinner platter came barreling toward the back of Agent One's head. He turned, but not in time. And I couldn't shoot the giant insect without hitting Ray. My partner grunted as the bug hit him, and he went down, his body splashing into the soggy ground of the cattail marsh. I couldn't tell if he'd been stung, but the wasp that nailed him quickly turned to finish the job. I had a beat on the thing now, though, and a single shot of my automatic turned the yellow and black monster into a pile of foul-smelling greenish goo, which quickly disintegrated. There was no time to admire my marksmanship or collect samples for the tarragons, though. Ray! I cried, kneeling next to Agent One's prone form. The escalating, droning thrum in the air told me I didn't have much time to check his wounds before the bugs would be on us again. A big red scrape covered the left side of Agent One's neck, and his shoulder looked swollen. Stung, probably. I tore away his sleeve, but didn't see a stinger in the wound. Remembering a lecture Doc gave us, I didn't cut or tourniquet it. Ray would have to fight off the effects on his own until I could retrieve the antivenom kit from the agency's Studebaker. I didn't think his neck injury would require stitches, assuming my co-agent lived. Right then, I had more pressing things to worry about, as another wave of wasps swarmed in on us. I blasted as many as I could with my automatic, and then snatched up Ray's gun and extra clip after my own ammo ran out, which was all too soon. Agent One moaned softly while I fought for our lives. As I fired my last few rounds, I wondered how long it would take Agent Five, or somebody, to find our bodies. Damn! Empty! We had more ammo in the car, of course, but a cloud of yellow and black SOBs seethed between our cattail blind and that little piece of salvation. I drew the combat knife from my boot and skewered a bug I hadn't been able to shoot. I cut the one after that in half as it zeroed in on me. So far, my French resistance knife fighting training had saved our bacon, but I knew that only last while the bugs came one or two at a time and it looked like our luck had just about run out. Three of them angled in on us, buzzing bundles of yellow and black fury. I dodged the first, neatly bisected the second, and cut a wing off the third. I kicked the crippled one into the nearby lake before I could crawl over to Ray. If my partner had been conscious, now would have been a great time to dive into the water and hold our breaths. But with him out cold, ah! pain like fire shot up my back. I wheeled, cutting with my knife, but my fingers had gone numb from the sting. I watched helplessly as the blade flew from my hand into the cattails. The wasp hovered less than a yard away, looking to sting me again. Desperate, I threw a haymaker left as my knees went weak. I got lucky and smacked it in the head. The bugger scudded through the air out over the lake before righting itself and coming at me again. I ducked, throwing my body across rays, hoping that I might at least protect him, even at the cost of my own life. The evil buzz of giant insect wings droned ever louder. I looked up, and a demonic yellow and black face leered at me, hovering, aiming for the kill. I'd have swung at it, but now pain from the previous sting made it impossible to even stand. Being stabbed during the war had even felt better. Sorry, Ray. 
I managed to gasp between gritted teeth. The shadow swooped overhead and suddenly the wasp just vanished. What the? I didn't have time to figure out this miraculous save. I could see through the reeds the two more monsters were winging our way. I fought down the pain and struggled to my feet, determined to make the best fight of it that I could. But a tingling sensation in the back of my neck told me to duck. I did, just as a huge shadow buzzed past me, followed by another. I gasped. Dragonflies. The new bugs were at least a yard long with wingspans twice that. They plucked the deadly wasps out of the air as easily as a kid pulling petals off a flower. I once read that dragonflies were the deadliest predator in the world and these sure were making short work of the wasps. As soon as the bigger insects appeared, the wasps lost all interest in Ray and me. I didn't have time to admire the lopsided bug fight, though. Come on, Ray! I said, grunting as I dragged Agent One out of the cattails and towards the safety of our Studebaker. Every muscle in my body was ablaze, but if I could just get us to the car, Ray groaned and actually started stumbling along as I half carried him. Our Studebaker still lay a long way off. The flutter of giant wings grew closer. I looked back and cursed as the dragonfly, big as a bald eagle, vectored toward us. Apparently humans were on its menu once wasps ran out. Get the hell back! I screamed futilely, still half-dragging Ray toward the car. The dragonfly exploded. For a moment, my pain-racked brain thought I'd somehow done it. Then, two more. The ones closest to us went down, too. I turned and saw a second Studebaker parked next to ours, an Agent 5, Nelson Deadeye Corrigan, grinning at us. Thin wisps of vapor drifted from the muzzle of his specially modified sniper rifle, and the stench of cordite and rancid bug guts filled the early summer air. I got worried when I couldn't raise you on the car radio, Five said. Figured I'd better drive out and see what was going on. Under his watchful eye, the remaining handful of giant dragonflies kept their distance, though they continued picking off the remaining wasps. Seems they feared Five's sting more than that of their fellow insects. I didn't blame them. Want me to mop up the rest? Five asked. He pressed his eye to his scope once more as Ray and I reached the cars. No way to tell if those are the only ones, I replied. Time to call in the army. So that's exactly what we did, Gigi. Ray and I got some much-needed medical attention as Five helped the grunts clear the area of bugs of all types, even Ray's fireflies. Aw, uh, that's kind of sad. They weren't hurting anybody. Yeah, I guess, but with what we'd been through, none of us wanted to take any chances. The tarragons were pretty disappointed, though. By the time they arrived, there was nothing left to take samples of. So what caused it all, Rocky? Atomic radiation? Flying saucers? Natural mutation? Soviet experiments? What did the tarragons figure out? Nobody knows, Gigi. They're still working on it. Ray and I recovered, but at the time we all thought that Colorado might be the end of it. Of course, it was only the beginning. Did the Terragons know this was coming somehow? Is that why they formed the Bureau? I've got to get back to work. You'll have to ask the Terragons yourself. If my dad, I mean the General, will let me. Gigi, keep studying and asking questions and you'll make a fine agent one day. But don't let anyone, not even your dad, tell you what you can or can't do or be. I won't. Thanks, Suzanne. You're welcome. Future Agent Brock. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. 
brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Wings of Death, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and read by Rachel Grubb as Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford, Stephen D. Sullivan as Agent 5, Nelson Deadeye Corrigan, and Gwen Ruhoff as Bureau Secretary and aspiring future agent Gigi Brock. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present Atomic Tales Stories of science, mystery, and excitement This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series Strange Invaders Tonight our intrepid adventurers find themselves in over their heads in a honey of a tale that we call Beehive Yourself Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Grab your gear, Agent One. Agent Seven, ruthless Ruth Donlevy, called to me early one Friday afternoon. After a long stint, I'd been looking forward to enjoying a weekend off. But when the U.S. Science Bureau asks... What's up? I replied. We're going back to Colorado, she told me. Gigi's got the car revved up to take us to the airport. I'll grab my stuff from my locker and meet you in the garage. Minutes later, the two of us were riding in the back of an agency car on our way to Andrews for a flight to Denver. Busy day. Agency secretary Gigi Brock, our driver, remarked. First a bunch of agents fly to Nebraska, and now you two are headed for Colorado. Nebraska? I asked. Yeah, Gigi replied. I dropped three, six, and eight at the airport to investigate the wreck of the train that was carrying Dr. Hedison's body out here to D.C. What? I blurted. I'd arranged that shipment after defeating Hedison in his mutated form as the man-sect. Agent Zero thought you and I deserved some time off after our run-in with that guy. Agent Seven explained. How's your shoulder? I rubbed the bandaged wound. Okay, but... But then this new job came up. I'll fill you in during the flight. And Miss Brock? Yes? Gigi replied. You need to be more discreet while chauffeuring if you ever want to be an agent. Gigi swallowed hard, chastened. Yes, ma'am. Half a day later, Agent 7 and I had driven our agency Studebaker from Denver to Hideaway Park, Colorado, a winter resort in the mountains. Since it was still summer, the town's outskirts looked deserted. Lots of rolling terrain, evergreens, and big sky surrounded by the Rockies. The sun was dipping toward the western peaks, and the air smelled of ponderosa pines and warm summer greenery. We've come all this way to talk to a guy about honey, Ruth? I asked. Yep. Agent 7 affirmed. Turned out that honey we found in Hedison's lab had some kind of strange contamination, similar to what Doc Tarragon found in that giant ant nest your team explored. I shuddered at the memory. I guess stopping the Mansect wasn't the end of the giant bug invasion. 
She shrugged. Still too early to tell. Maybe we can get some info from this guy. Ruth pulled the Studebaker up to a hillside cabin with a hand-lettered sign declaring, Souvenirs, Maps, Snowshoe Rental, Best Local Honey. The place looked more like a run-down private home than an actual business. A rusting Ford pickup sat in front of an even rattier-looking garage out back. It seemed we weren't the only customers, though. A well-maintained, late-model blue Chevy Bel Air sat in the wide gravel driveway-slash-parking lot area next to the building. Ruth parked next to the Chevy, and we headed for the cabin's front porch, which displayed the shack's advertised wares in propped-up wooden boxes. A man in overalls and a sleeveless white undershirt stood on the porch talking to a woman in a red blouse and maroon skirt. Her pencil flew quickly across a pad of notepaper. The man clutched a jar of honey in his calloused hand. Both of them watched us as Seven and I approached. Clearly, we weren't from the area. Mr. Gordon, Agent Seven said. Proprietor of Hideaway Honey? That's me, Gordon replied, suspicious. Best honey in the Rocky Mountains. The pine scent from the nearby forest couldn't cover the musk of his cheap aftershave. We'd like to talk to you about that honey, I said. Gordon grinned a gapped tooth smile. Must be a banner day, he proclaimed. Little Miss here was just asking about that, too. The woman in red extended her hand. Tammy Rubens from the Denver Examiner. We chase the news that you can use, and you are? I'm Agent Raymond, and this is Agent Ruth, I said. Gordon's gray eyes narrowed. Not revenuers here to arrest me, are you? Not today. Agent Seven replied, deadpan. Hideaway honey is very popular in Denver. Miss Rubens explained. That's the focus of my article. She smiled sweetly. But if the government wants to talk to you, I'd better be going, Mr. Gordon. You give me a good write-up, won't you, Missy? He reminded her. You bet. Miss Rubens replied. With a nod and a brief wave, she got in her Chevy and drove away. Now, Gordon said, less friendly since the reporter had gone. What you government types want? We need to know where you're getting your honey. I replied. That's a secret, he said proudly. Industrial secret, you might say. Ruth put on her best steely-eyed killer face. There are no secrets from the U.S. government. It took Ruth and me the better part of an hour to convince Gordon that we didn't care about his illicit income, but were, instead, concerned with contamination our scientists had discovered in his honey. Contamination that might hurt people and get him sued. Reluctantly, he got into his battered Ford and led us to his source. Not a hidden set of woodland hives, but, weirdly, to an old water tunnel in the mountains. The three-yard wide entrance was partially boarded over, but a small stream of clear liquid still ran from it into the ravine beyond, and alongside the water came something else, a golden trickle being funneled by a makeshift collection device into a two-gallon jug. There must be a hell of a big hive in that tunnel. Seven, ever the scientist noted. I discovered it a while back, Gordon said proudly. It was just going to waste, so I figured, what the hell? Remember, you said you wouldn't tell. Not if it's safe, I reminded him, poking around the hillside opening. Ruth, these boards are loose. The bottom cluster of planks swung up, almost like a doggy door. And can you hear that? Agent Seven nodded. The buzzing echoing from inside the tunnel sounded almost like an approaching freight train. You don't want to go messing around in there, Gordon warned. I had an old dog that went in when I discovered the honey. He didn't never come out. Sorry, I said, pulling out a flashlight. I pushed the boards aside and peered in. It's our job to investigate. Ruth crowded close to get a look as well. 
The dingy tunnel vanished into the mountainside, but just at the edge of their reach our flashlight beams shone upon something golden blocking most of the passage, a wall of six-sided cells. Beehive, Ruth whispered, stunned. It's huge, I added, my mouth dry. She nodded. These are no ordinary. Ray, look out! Ruth and I dove for cover as a giant bee flew down the tunnel straight at the opening we'd made in the boards. Mr. Gordon, duck! I cried. Whether he didn't hear me or was too stunned to move, we'll never know because before he could hit the deck, the bee attacked. The bug wasn't as big as the giant ants plaguing the desert southwest, but its body was at least the size of a German shepherd with a sting as long as my little finger. Gordon screamed once and fell into the pine bracken, dead. Seven and I fired our agency automatics, each putting one into the monster insect's body and a second into its head. Greenish ichor sprayed the honey farmer's corpse as the creature died and rapidly disintegrated into foul-smelling ooze. Damn it, I cursed. We need to have Gordon cleaned up and buried at government expense once we finished this case. Ray, there are more! Seven warned, pointing to the tunnel. Of course. There's never just one bee in a hive. Make for the car, I commanded. I shot the next bug pushing through the boards, decapitating it as the two of us ran for the Studebaker. Will the car's steel keep them out? I asked as Seven picked off two more that edged past the obstruction. Not sure, she replied. We kept firing as new bees emerged, but we'd have to reload soon, and then... I opened the Studebaker's trunk and tossed a shotgun to Ruth as our automatics ran out of ammo. Ray, remember how we finished that centipede in that ghost town? She asked. Sure, I replied. She tossed her scattergun back to me. Hold them off! I'm going to try the same thing with Gordon's truck. With a pump-action shotgun in each hand, I would have done John Wayne proud, but the bees just kept coming. More and more crowded the tunnel exit, their angry buzzing building like the drone of an air raid siren. As I chambered my last round, Ruth yelled, Ray, take cover! Gordon's Ford rocketed past me. Ruthless Ruth had jammed the accelerator somehow and sent it kamikaze-style toward the tunnel entrance. I joined her behind our Studebaker as the pickup reached the beehive entrance. The entire mountainside rumbled as orange flames consumed the tunnel, frying the bees swarming the entrance into blackened husks. A smell like burnt shrimp assaulted my nose as the shockwave set my ears ringing and knocked me on my can. Fortunately, the blazing truck blocked any more bug attacks. For now. You're getting pretty good at making cars into Molotov cocktails, I observed, dusting myself off. Keep it up and you'll give Boom Boom a run for his money. She laughed before growing serious. Oh, we need to call in the army. Hope this burns long enough for them to get here. And if it doesn't, I asked. She patted our Studebaker and grinned. Then we've got one more cocktail to serve, and you get to continue your record of destroying agency property. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Beehive Yourself, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent One, and featured Stephanie Mim as Agent Seven, Ruthless Ruth Donlevy, Gwen Ruhoff as Agency Secretary and Chauffeur Gigi Brock, Danielle Gerlader, a.k.a. horror host Penny Dreadful as reporter Tammy Rubens, and Mark Hader as Mr. Gordon, the would-be honey magnate. 
Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales, stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. Tonight, agents of the U.S. Science Bureau investigate a mysterious train wreck in Rattletrap. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. That'll wreck your day for sure. Agent 4 said, gazing at the shadowed railroad trestle and the half-dozen ruined cars lying in the sloping ravine. Hey, Agent 3? I nodded as the late afternoon sun cast long, dark shadows across the wreckage. The two-day-old crash site smelled of dry grass, machine oil, fractured timber, and a whole lot of dust. Lucky it was just a freight train or a lot more folks could have been killed. One gully in the entire region and this train dives into it, observed Agent 8, Wild Bill Hayes as he loped to the defile's edge. Nebraska is pretty flat, but here in the southwest near Colorado you still find ravines and small canyons. Bill rubbed his backside. It'd been a bumpy ride from the little airport in Grand Island. Two people dead and two missing, but we're here to look for someone who's dead before the accident. Can't blame the railroad for being more concerned with their personnel than Dr. Hedison's corpse, I remarked. They don't know that body might hold the key to the country's secret battle against the giant bugs. Speaking of railroad agents... Agent 4 hooked his thumb toward a pair of men who'd parked next to our agency Studebaker. You those government types? A tall, dark-haired man in jeans and a khaki shirt called as he and a shorter, similarly dressed blonde man ambled toward us. U.S. Science Bureau, I said, shaking hands. I'm Agent Suzanne. I'm in charge of this investigation, and these are Agents Alec and Bill. I'm Bellows, and this is Coffee, said the taller man. From the insurance company. Coffee laughed. <laughs> A woman in charge? If that don't beat all. Anything new? I asked, ignoring him. While I spoke with the insurance men, Agent 4, Alec Boom Boom Murphy, and Agent 8 searched for the best way to the gorge's bottom were dressed in resilient blue-gray agency jumpsuits for the occasion and brought along climbing equipment. Four toted his usual backpack of infernal devices as well. How's the hospitalized engineer, I asked. Bellows shrugged. He's babbling about bright lights coming at him and then hearing war drums and screams when he woke at the top of the ravine. Delirious, then, I said. Though actually, the engineer's rantings intrigued me. Any reports of seeing lights in the sky or other strange occurrences? Not that I've heard, Bellows replied. These timbers are rotted, Coffee announced, dusting his hands off after a cursory exam of the scene. Clear case of the railroad neglecting to maintain this rattletrap trestle. Our company shouldn't have to pay for this. Agent 4 frowned. This girder looks partly melted. Take out a few of those and the whole structure would come down. Probably melted in the fire after the crash, Coffee responded. No signs of fire here, Agent 8 put in. Sabotage? Bellows asked. We just need to review all the evidence, I replied, and we can't do that from up here. 
Coffee blanched. You're not suggesting we go down there. Bellows laughed. Bill? Alec? You figured out the best way down yet? I asked. There's a wash over here that looks passable, Rocky. Agent 4, Alec, indicated a spot ten yards away. I rigged some safety lines. And let's get to it. Daylight's wasting. Agent 8 shook his head as we descended. When I transferred to the Reno office, I think Donna was hoping I'd bring home less dirty laundry. I don't see why we need to trudge down here at all. Coffee complained, dusting off his work clothes when we reached the bottom. An unsettling silence filled the ravine. Broken timbers and twisted steel lay all around us, and the remains of the six-carriage train snaked up the side of the gorge like a kid's busted Lionel set. The gully's air smelled more strongly of iron, fuel oil, and shattered lumber, along with the musky dampness. You science folks always packing heat on your investigations? Bellows asked, as my fellow agents and I checked our sidearms. We like to be prepared. I replied. Like the Boy Scouts. Four added with a smile. Might be coyotes or something down here. Eight concluded. Coffee looked nervously up and down the defile. I didn't spot any coyotes or any sign of the steel coffin we'd shipped Dr. Hedison's body in either. We're gonna have to check inside all these train cars, Rocky? Eight asked. I nodded. Searchers examine the cars for survivors. Bellows noted. Just what are you people looking for? Coffee asked suspiciously. Science stuff. Four replied. Hey, Alec, give me a hand with this. Eight said. He pulled on the side door of a freight car resting at the bottom of the gorge, but it didn't budge. Sure thing. Four replied, grabbing hold. You know, there's a better way to get this open. As usual, Alec was aching to blow something up. There should be a door on the other side, too, I commented. One that might not be stuck. Is that thunder? Coffee wondered, gazing at the sky above the ravine. I heard the noise, too, like distant drumming. No, it seems to be coming from... With a tortured groan and a shower of rust, the cargo door that Eight and Four were tugging on cracked open. Eight laughed. Hey, the door on the other side's open. Look out! I cried. Suddenly, the stuck door rolled back completely and out of the boxcar sprang a nightmare. The snake was at least 30 feet long, thick as a beer barrel, and covered with fist-sized ochre and brown scales. Its reptilian eyes glowed yellow-green in the canyon's semi-darkness. The air thundered with the drum-like sound from its rattling tail. The creature smelled like rotten meat. Agent 4 hit the deck, but the monster rattler's fangs tore open the leg of 8th jumpsuit as it sprang. Bill screamed and fell hard into the side of the rail car, but he wasn't the enormous serpent's target. Coffee didn't even have time to cry out as the serpent's jaws clamped around his body. The chubby insurance man stiffened and died as the snake injected him with enough venom to kill 20 men. I put a pair of shots into the back of the rattler's head as it dropped Coffee's corpse, but the bullets didn't pierce the thing's scales. The enormous serpent whipped around in my direction. Between me and it, Bellows was scrambling up the side of the ravine trying to escape. Running prey makes an easy target. The giant rattler coiled and sprang, sinking its fangs deep once more. Bellow's high-pitched wail echoed through the defile as the monster killed him. But his death bought the rest of us a few extra seconds. Alec, I called. When I lead it past, drop the engine on it. Right. Four replied, racing uphill to the wrecked locomotive, well away from where Bill lay injured. Alec fished in his backpack for the right gear. Hey, snake! I shouted, firing at its head again. As it turned, I ran up the gully and into the shadows as fast as I could, praying I judged my distances right. The rattler's coil strike missed my back by two or three yards. 
I gagged and almost tripped as the musky odor of its gaping maw washed over me. Undeterred, the giant reptile resumed the chase, its huge bulk shoving aside rocks and crushing the dry grass at the gully's bottom as it came after me. The monster sounded like a rushing whirlwind on my tail. I wanted to take another shot at it, but I didn't dare slow down. Rocky, look out! Alex shouted, and Brute's awful odor surged over me again. Death was coming, and this time it wouldn't miss. The snake hissed and fell back as two well-placed shots took out its right eye. I glanced back just long enough to see that Wild Bill, bleeding leg and all, had rejoined the fight. The hulk of the derailed locomotive's engine boomed before me two dozen yards uphill to my right. Now, Alec, now! I cried as the mutant snake closed in once more. My bones shook and the canyon thundered with Boom Boom Murphy's carefully placed blast. The train engine dislodged from its perch and hurtled to the bottom of the ravine in a cloud of dust and rocks. The gigantic serpent turned toward the new threat, but the locomotive rolled right over it, flattening the monster like roadkill. The snake's thunderous rattle shook frantically for a few long moments, and then stopped. Four, eight, and I put a dozen more shots into the thing's eyes just to make sure it was dead. You okay, Bill? I asked. It gave me a nice cut, but... I don't think I got poisoned. Eight replied. I'd feel it if I was, right? Yeah. Four agreed. You probably wouldn't be gabbing so much. Who wants to gab? I'd rather be in Reno relaxing by the pool with Donna. Eight replied. That leg wound might get you your wish, I noted, at least for a couple of weeks. The three of us gazed at the giant snake's body as it rapidly disintegrated into a foul-smelling ooze. Just like the damn bugs, I observed. The scope of our little war had expanded again. Well, at least we're not going to have to cut that sucker open to see if it swallowed Hedison's coffin. Eight observed. Agent Ford chuckled. Yeah. But Rocky's not going to get 16 pair of snakeskin boots out of this ruckus either. I'm just happy to escape with my own skin intact, I replied. Too bad those insurance boys can't say the same. Agent Four smiled grimly. Don't worry, he said. I'm sure that the guys who come to investigate what happened to them will chalk it up to railroad negligence. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Rattle Trap, was written by Stephen D. Sullivan. It was produced and edited by Christopher R. Mim and read by Rachel Grubb, who also played Agent 3, Suzanne Rocky Rockford. And it featured Elliot Mim as Agent 4, Alec Boom Boom Murphy, Joe George as Agent 8, William Wild Bill Hayes, plus Peter Danbury as Mr. Bellows, and me as Mr. Coffee, the insurance man. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2021 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. Stephen D. Sullivan and St. Euphoria present... Atomic Tales, stories of science, mystery, and excitement. This episode features the latest installment in our fantastic original series, Strange Invaders. 
Tonight, our intrepid agents investigate strange lights and mysterious cattle deaths in Devil in the Lake. Join us now as we present another in our continuing series of Atomic Tales. Agent Raymond, what are you doing here? Tammy Rubens asked. Who's this with you? I never expected to meet this reporter again, and certainly not on the aspen-covered shores of a placid lake in southwest Utah. She was dressed in jeans and a plaid shirt, and had her auburn hair tucked up under St. Louis Cardinal's ball cap. I might ask you the same, Miss Rubens, I replied. Devil's Foot, Utah is a long way from your newspaper in Denver. Agent Six stepped forward and extended his hand. I'm Agent Richard, by the way. Call me Rick. You'll have to excuse my buddy Ray. He's not big on social niceties. Ray, eh? The reporter jotted something in her notebook. Pleased to meet you, Rick. You can call me Tammy, and so can your all-business friend. I fought down a blush. Roughhouse Rick Donlevy sure could turn on the charm when he wanted to, especially if it meant needling a fellow U.S. Science Bureau agent. I'm surprised you didn't fly home from Vegas, Tammy, I said, suspicious. I cut my vacation short due to budget, she replied. Vegas? I'm lucky I didn't lose my car. So I'm digging up stories on my way home to put the drive back on my expense account. Are you two here because of that flying saucer? Agent Six and I exchanged a poker-faced glance. Nope, I replied. We're looking into local livestock problems, Six added. Like whether some dead cattle were related to UFOs or any of the other strange issues the Bureau had been tackling in the western U.S. We'll be taking water tests, talking to ranchers, the usual, I elaborated. Tammy rolled her brown eyes. My scoop sounds much more exciting. Locals say a flying saucer dived into the lake late Sunday night. Full moon and locals drinking? Rick suggested. She shrugged. Maybe, but did you know this place is called Devil's Foot Lake because it resembles a huge cloven hoof print? I did not, I admitted. The hilly shoreline did approximate a horseshoe-like shape. And, the reporter continued, The original natives thought a sea serpent lived in the lake. They wouldn't swim there. Monsters, saucers, great story, eh? Did you see any flying saucers? Six asked. She frowned. Nope. Camped out last night, but just a sky full of stars. She handed us each a business card. Well, boys, call me if you find any monsters. Bye. Six said as Tammy strolled toward her blue Chevy in the unpaved lakeside parking lot nearby. As she got out of earshot, Rick added... Some view. We're here looking for what killed three cattle since Sunday, I reminded him. Not to ogle pretty girls. <laughs> Unless they're queen bees, he joked. With that ape thing Agent Four and I encountered and the giant snake that just put eight on the injured list, plus the mansect, the tarragons think we've got more to worry about than just giant bugs, I noted. Come on, Rick. The cattle were found near the southwest spur of the lake. Good thing we brought our hiking boots. Six and I tromped west through the weeds and bracken along the shore of Devil's Foot Lake, looking for anything unusual. I grabbed a few samples of lake water for the tarragons as we went. We spotted a handful of cattle grazing along the way. If not for three steers sucked dry, Devil's Foot Lake would have been an idyllic place. Maybe even a vacation spot if the new interstate highways ever get this far. Aside from the little town on the eastern heel of the lake and a few nearby ranches, civilization had made few inroads here. As we walked, Six and I passed the ruins of several old barns, homestead farming that just didn't work out. The air smelled of aspens and wild grassland. A man could grow to like this place. Agent Six observed, taking a deep breath as we paused beside the tumble-down remains of an abandoned cabin. 
The ruins were little more than a picturesque jumble of weathered timbers filling a pit that had once been the home's basement. What do you think trampled this down, roughhouse? I asked, indicating nearby spots where the ubiquitous tall grass lay flat. Several of these tracks crossed each other before stretching into the distance, like three-yard-wide game trails. Grazing cattle? He suggested. Maybe, I agreed. Then I paused. Wait. Listen. We stood silent, tense. What the hell is that? Six muttered. I shook my head. It sounded like something lapping at a puddle of water combined with a low groaning sound. Cow? Six suggested. In distress, I said. Come on. We drew our automatics and dashed in the direction of the noise, hurrying through the scattered trees as the tall grass whipped at our waists. We broke through the brush near the lakeshore and splashed to a stop. On the swampy ground before us, right at the edge of the lake, lay a full-grown steer flopping like a fish out of water. What in... Six began. Should we try to help it up? I suggested. You ever done that before, Ray? First time for everything, I said, stepping toward the distressed animal. Just stay away from its horns. Six sighed. You're the boss. As we approached, the steer lurched toward us. We hopped back instinctively. Something's very wrong here, Ray. Six muttered, training his gun on the animal. The grass around it had been smashed flat, like the odd trails we'd noticed earlier. Just then, the steer's mouth popped open and a questing black tongue thrust out. Get back! I shouted. As I spoke, the animal burst open, like a ragdoll coming apart at the seams. Cowhide and rotten-smelling guts flew everywhere, revealing a hideous, black, writhing thing. Mother of mercy! Six blurted. It's the size of a school bus! I fired a couple of shots into the huge, slug-like body and Six did the same, but our bullets had little effect, like sticking toothpicks into jello. We backed away as the monster surged from the shoreline, but Six tripped and landed on his backside. He screamed as the thing's blunt front end sliced through his shirt, almost latching onto his side. Sucker's got teeth! It's a leech, I think, I said as the rest of the abomination lumbered out of the brackish water that had concealed its bulk. Run! We ran, and the leech slunk after us, twenty yards of glistening black death. The creature couldn't undulate as fast as we could run, not in a sprint anyway, but it seemed to have no intention of giving up the hunt. You okay? I asked as we fled. He checked his side, and his hand came away red with blood. Not really. Just don't pass out, okay? I'll try not to. He replied, glancing at our slug-like pursuer. Clearly leaving the waterside didn't concern it. Is that what got those cattle? It better be, or we're in even bigger trouble than I think. The significance of the strange trails became clear now. The leech flattened them while foraging inland. What now? Six asked, looking pale and desperate. Head for that last ruined cabin, I called. I have a plan. Fortunately, the wreckage wasn't far. When we got there, Six was panting and clutching his side. The monster continued to follow, relentlessly trampling the dry grass as it came. We didn't have much time. Give me your shirt, I commanded. Then get to the other side of the ruins and find the longest, pointiest timbers you can. Six quickly stripped off his bloody shirt and retreated as ordered. The cabin had collapsed in the middle, making it look like a pile of enormous pickup sticks, about ten yards across. I tottered my way through the wreck, trying not to fall in, smearing gore from Rick's shirt to mark my path as I went. I dropped the blood-stained garment in the middle of a heap and, after a few precarious missteps, I reached the far side just as the leech followed the bloody trail to the ruins. 
When I rejoined Six, he handed me a weathered fence rail as thick as my arm, keeping a similar piece of lumber for himself. What now? He asked as the monster lumbered into a pile of jagged, broken timbers. A smarter creature would never have gone in, but its bloodlust drove the leech forward. Now we stab the devil out of it, pin it in the ruins, and then set the sucker afire. We'll hit it from both sides. Check. And don't let it get to you. Oh, that last is my first priority. Six said grimly. Let's do this. With ear-splitting savage yells, ah! we charged. The nearly mindless creature had stopped in the center of the ruins, trying to consume Rick's blood-stained shirt. Six stabbed the leech just behind what passed for its head, pinning the end amid the wreckage. I did the same with its rear. The worm-like monster wailed a terrible whistling, hissing sound and thrashed violently as we fetched more pointed timbers and kept stabbing. Soon we had its entire length pinned out like a dissection specimen. Writhe as it might, the leech couldn't get away. We piled dry grass for tinder around the desiccated wooden heap and set the whole damn thing ablaze. The leech smelled like burning liver. Hold the onions. Best damn bonfire I ever built. Six remarked, still looking pale and sweaty. I nodded, out of breath from our efforts. You earned your nickname today, Roughhouse. But Ray... He mused, worried. What if there are more of those things? Well, in that case, old chum, I think it's time to call in the Marines. This has been an original story of Strange Invaders, part of our ongoing series of Atomic Tales. Brought to you by St. Euphoria Productions. Tonight's episode, Devil in the Lake, was written by Stephen DeSullivan. It was produced, edited, and read by Christopher R. Mim, who also played Agent 1, Ray Tyler, and featured Christopher Young as Agent 6, Roughhouse Rick Donlevy, and Danielle Gelliter, a.k.a. horror host Penny Dreadful, as reporter Tammy Rubens. Be sure to tune in next month for more Atomic Tales. Please support the films of Christopher R. Mim at SaintEuphoria.com and the work of Stephen D. Sullivan via his Patreon at PaySteve.com. Join the conversation at the Monster Conservancy at SaveMonsters.com. All elements of this episode are copyright 2022 by their creators and may not be reproduced or reused without permission. Atomic Tales and Strange Invaders are trademarks of Stephen D. Sullivan, all rights reserved. that brings us to the end of this episode of monster kid radio once again thank you for listening thanks for being here i really appreciate everybody's hard work to make this week's episode as awesome as it is of course christopher m and Stephen d sullivan's efforts with atomic tales so cool to hear that and again thank you for letting us play that here on the show gang also kenny his look at famous monsters of Filmland. i had never heard of this halloween town thing so if anybody has any leads on how we might be able to see it Drop me a line, please. I'd love to be able to see this thing. It sounds like it could be a lot of fun. And of course, Mark Matsky is killing it with the beta capsule review. I, I don't know if I would consider Monster Kid Radio a complete episode without a little bit of ultra goodness provided by Mark. No pressure, Mark, but you know, seriously, you make the show that much better. So thank you. Now you can find out everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio between episodes or even while you listen over at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. You're going to find links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Reddit, our Discord, our Patreon, and everything else that we got going on. You're going to find links to everything that we talk about here on the show right there. So go check that out. Also, that's where our Amazon affiliate links are as well. So please consider shopping through Amazon 
through one of those links, there is just a generic Amazon affiliate link. It's the Frankenstein monster silhouette. Click on that. That takes you straight to Amazon, just underneath the monster kid radio umbrella. Any shopping that you do after you click on that link, we get a couple of pennies off of whatever it is you buy. Now it doesn't cost you anything extra. It just takes a couple of pennies out of Jeff Bezos's pocket. I, I don't think he'd miss it. So please consider shopping through that Amazon affiliate link. If you are going to shop through Amazon. Of course, there's links to our Tee Public shop. We have an awesome Is It Halloween Yet t-shirt available right now. And I do still have some things going with our eBay listing. So go to tinyurl.com slash mkreBay for that. Again, it's all on the website at monsterkidradio.net. What's coming up next week? I already mentioned it a little bit. I'm going to try to get some content at the Lovecraft Film Festival. I'm moderating a panel on Sunday. So I'm going to try to capture that at the very least. I'll try to get some more too, though. You know I like to get content at the Lovecraft Film Festival, and I didn't go last year. I feel like I, I need some tentacle uh, goodness. I'm, I'm, I need that tentacle itching scratched. That sounded really weird. So let's just move on and remind you that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to Atomic Tales. That belongs to them. And the song All Night Midnight Monster Party is copyright 2022, Nicholas Burgess. You can find that over at nicholasburgess.bandcamp.com and pre-order the album now. Check them out. And like I said at the beginning of the show, and like I always say, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.
a desperate man driven to despair at the edge of insanity as he did.